My guest for the day grew up in Madison in Eagle Heights student housing. In her senior year of high school, a mental breakdown ensued, leading to a diagnosis of manic depression. Francesca Hong has found her path in the culinary world and most recently has brought her activism to the next level as she was recently elected to the State Assembly District 76. I'm Ben Brown and this is the Madisonian Podcast. Happy late Valentine's Day. Early on towards the start of the Madisonian Podcast in August, I did a two-part segment called the State Senate Spotlight Series. One of the State Senate candidates who I interviewed, Nada Elmikashvi, was running her campaign in partnership in this kind of alliance with my guest for the day, Francesca Hong, who is running for assembly. The young progressive politician women of color powerhouse duo caught my eye and I've been interested in the work of both since. Francesca Hong is so young, yet has done so much in tying activism and owning a restaurant together, founding nonprofits that have accomplished major feats and helped our community, and campaigning for her brand new, much-deserved spot in the state legislature. Be sure to leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and shoot us a review as it helps us get found in the algorithm. Now please enjoy my interview with Representative Francesca Hong. Yeah, so I am born and raised in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, My parents immigrated here in the late 80s from South Korea. I'm a proud daughter of Korean parents. They came here uh, in pursuit of education. So my dad was accepted into the PhD program at UW-Madison for sociology. And my mom came and was a a stay-at-home mom and then pursued her own uh, education ambitions and went back to school, uh, to the School of Music at UW-Madison and became a a K-12 general music uh, school teacher. She taught in the Middleton public school systems for just over 10 years. And my sister and I, um, I have one younger sister, we grew up in Eagle Heights and university housing for most of our childhood. Um, we were very fortunate to uh, live in a very diverse neighborhood of, of families. A lot of them who like us were, were uh, working or studying um, at the university. Um, and, and we were, you know, had, had, were, a, I wouldn't, we would say we I would say we were working poor. Um, and then uh, once my father graduated, um, he was able to get a job at the Wiseman Center. And um, we ended up uh, going from university housing to getting a small ranch home uh, on the near west side. I went to Short Elementary School, Hamilton Middle School, and then graduated from West High School in 2007. Um, and uh, growing up, our house was filled with music. My mom, uh, being the music teacher, um, you know, she always was uh, doing piano lessons at home um, or, or uh, doing recitals. She's a voice major as well. And uh, I, I was one of those kids that, you know, kind of an overachiever. I, I played soccer. I did music. I uh, participated in theater. Uh, that was 
you know, very fortunate to, to grow up in a school setting that really encouraged um, and, and valued the arts. Um, I did the uh, honor societies and, um, you know, was, was just really fortunate to be able to um, get so many different experiences. Um, uh, and I think I've always had a kind of a, a, a yearning for a bunch of different experiences um, because as, as an Asian American, um, you know, building identity is, is a very kind of turbulent and somewhat melancholic process. And I think I just wanted to figure out where I belong like anyone else. Um, and so I, I just, you know, dip my toes in everything. Um, so why, why do you think it is such a, a melancholy process, specifically as an Asian American? Why, why is that to, to find your identity or find yourself? Yeah, so I mean, our I, I say our our um, schools were diverse in a sense that you know, especially at Shorewood Elementary School, we we had this amazing. I remember having International Week, and then there were kids represented from over fifty different countries, and and for a while, I thought that that's just how communities were, and and the you know, at while growing up, I, I realized that um, my proximity to whiteness and and really being the only Asian American in social circles was the new was my norm um and and that's isolating you know because you and then as an as a daughter of korean immigrants i didn't always quite fit in with um uh, other korean kids who uh, spoke the language better than i did um i do speak korean but it's it's very basic conversational um or who were here you know because their parents were visiting scholars or or um you know i didn't have a ton of korean american friends i think now as an adult speaking to other korean americans who grew up with a lot of korean americans in their communities their relationship with with um their uh, identity is much different than mine. Um, the, I think proximity to whiteness and really feeling like you're pressured by, um, you know, and, and feeling somewhat different all the time um, makes your identity building process somewhat melancholy because you're not really quite sure when you're your true self. As much as I wanted to embrace my Korean culture all the time, I wouldn't say I was as I'm as comfortable as I've ever been and, and have never been prouder to be Korean American. But the reality for a lot of Asian American kids growing up is, is you don't always feel that pride. And, and a lot of it is, is due to kind of this pressure to be model minority to, um, you know, we exist in the privilege with our proximity to whiteness. And, and I think that we don't always see discrimination as discrimination. And it's, it's, it's beneficial to us at times to just blend in and assimilate as opposed to really figuring out, um, you know, how we want to be represented and, and you know, where, where we belong and, and how loud our voice can be. Yeah, so you talked a little bit about uh, International Week at Shorewood, but kind of what was the overall school experience for you in those early years? Kind of what kind of student were you? Um, 
I think, you know, elementary, middle school, I, I did well in school. I, I really wanted to, I, I thrived in extracurriculars. I, I loved orchestra. I loved um, being able to be a part of different clubs. Um, in high school, uh, definitely playing soccer dominated a lot of my life. I, I played competitively in club soccer, as well as um, I was on the varsity team from, from freshman to senior year. Um, and then outside of sports, you know, because as you get older, and I'm sure you know, you you can't commit to everything, right? And so um, I, I committed primarily to soccer and, and schoolwork, um, but also, you know, uh, was able to participate in theater and um, different uh, honor societies and clubs at school. So I think what type of student was I? I was constantly, you know, striving for different experiences and uh, trying to figure out, you know, where, what I love the most. And, and I think I just, most of my experience in, in school was that I liked everything. <laughs> I was okay at most things. I, I didn't really have one um, expertise that I, I really wanted to follow or, or a huge passion. Um, and I was fortunate that, you know, that helped me build a lot of social relationships. Um, but it also, I think, was a big contributor to uh, a difficult time in my life, which was senior year. Um, I said I graduated from West End in 2007, but I didn't actually go to my graduation. Um, after the college application process, I, I had a really difficult uh, experience um, and and had a, a, a what you could call a mental breakdown and uh, recognized that um, you know mental health my mental health had been compromised and and uh, um, I was diagnosed with with manic depression my senior year so I think when I think back when I think about what kind of student I was um, thoughtful, worked hard, but also, you know, definitely pushed myself and didn't always understand my own boundaries. Yeah. So what did you like? How did you overcome that? that I mean, that diagnosis and, and kind of still continue to, I mean, to graduate and then go on. How did you think you were going to overcome that and go on to a prof professional career in, in something? Yeah, so there were a lot of moments where I didn't think I could overcome them. Um, I would um, that I went into some deep depths of depression and, and really questioned what my purpose was and, and what all of these experiences really meant. And um, it was really isolating and um, incredibly lonely. And I was fortunate to have um, parents who even though they didn't really understand what I was going through. There's a stigma in, for mental health illness in, in the Korean culture and a lot of Asian cultures as well. Um, there's, I think, still somewhat stigma that surrounds mental health illness um, as being seen as, as a physical illness and um, in certain, uh, in many communities of color. And yet they were incredibly supportive in finding me resources. I was, beyond lucky to have found a, uh, a mental health provider who, um, or a mental health professional who was able to uh, really help me recognize that um, my brain was different, but that that was okay. 
Um, and it doesn't mean that, uh, you know, my struggles have to define me. Um, I was able to still attend college for a little bit. A couple of years, I, I bounced around from, uh, I went to McAllister College in St. Paul first, and then came back to UW-Madison. So when I was in my kind of times of, of high productivity, I, I did really well. But the problem was I would, you know, constantly be kind of up and down. And, and the fear of not knowing when I was going to be down again is, I think, what really kept me from progressing in school the way I wanted to. But I was, again, so fortunate to have found the profession of cooking. And I think that um, to this day, what has helped me overcome and, and really uh, live with uh, mental illness and, and be more okay with it than I ever have been is the fact that the experience of being in the hospitality industry and, and working with my hands, creating, um, you know, I, I know that I would not have come into those experiences had I not had, um, you know, I think a part of me knows that I wouldn't have been in the industry had I not known that um, I didn't feel like I, it, the industry is where I felt mostly, most where I belonged than anywhere, than anywhere else. Do you remember cooking at all as, as a kid or, or, or was that just kind of something like brand new to you in, in college? Um, in, in high school, I was just fascinated by the Food Network, and then I started reading magazines, and then I started buying cookbooks. I did my first really big meal. Um, you know, I was at that time still active, in, in uh, my parents are Catholic, and, and we were, I grew up Catholic, and so um, I cooked a meal, I think it was for 100 people by myself somehow. I still don't really know how I did it. Um, and I, it, it gave me a sense of fulfillment and purpose that I really, even through all of my other activities and experiences hadn't felt. And so I think I always had a fascination with it, but didn't quite uh, understand that it could be a profession until I, I did that, you know, 100 person meal and, and then uh, worked part-time uh, waiting tables um, my first job was when I was 16 at a restaurant called Mystic Grill, and I was still serving to help pay for school um, and working part-time waiting tables. And one day, uh, one of our line cooks, I think, didn't come in for work, and I had been watching the cooks every day that I worked as a server, and I kind of just jumped in, and it, it really did felt, it felt right, and I felt happy. Um, and there's, there's, there's a rush and a stress and a controlled chaos of a kitchen that I've really come to appreciate. And I think that's why I love it so much, um, that there are constant variables that you never know what is gonna make that experience different that day. And it's also a place that you never stop learning. And you know, I wasn't succeeding in a more controlled, um, you know, in, in higher ed, but, I found ways to succeed in the industry. And I think it's due to the fact that cooking just makes me happy. So what was the decision or how did you like move out of that higher education? Like kind of what was that decision and where were you going to go next? Did you have a plan of, of where you were going to go next with, with your cooking? I mean, I, the, the goal was to be executive chef somewhere. I, once I dropped out of school and, the, like what prompted me to do that was just, I was 
kind of falling into some habits again with not habits, but just I was kind of going into some lower lows and, and felt myself becoming unstable um, in, in, in the classroom environment. I was a little older when I went back to UW than some of the other kids and I had other students and I had to take, um, you know, uh, some, some uh, freshman required courses and again, just felt, didn't quite feel like I belonged. And so going into cooking full time felt right in that, in that moment. And, um, you know, I, I was somewhat impulsive, but I ended up just taking on multiple jobs to, to, you know, part of it was survival mode in order to pay rent and be on my own. I, I couldn't just have one cooking job, um, especially at an entry level position. So I took on three different jobs would work 17, 18 hour days, was exhausted, but I was happy. And I couldn't, I couldn't believe that I was in a profession that I could be paid and, and learn so much. Um, and so it was difficult to go back to education to, to kind of pay just to, to learn. And, and um, instead where I was in a place where I was being paid to learn. And uh, so, yeah, I worked my way through multiple restaurants, just learning and um, having a new appreciation for mentorship. And I was fortunate to have chefs really um, value my work ethic and, and teach me so much and eventually worked my way up to becoming um, one of the youngest female executive chefs in, in town back in uh, 2012, which I think would have been the year I would have graduated college had I stayed in college. And so I, I, felt, um, I, I felt accomplished at that time. Um, yeah. So how did you work your way up? I think you're referring to 40 through no 43 North, where you were executive chef. How did you work your way up when you, you know, you didn't, you didn't go to culinary school? How did you make a name for yourself within that restaurant to be able to work yourself up to, to that highest position? Yeah, so part of it was, you know, I work i started as a line cook at 43 north and then um you know folks they they weren't it's always difficult opening a new restaurant and and it's 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 a tumultuous time and um as folks left i stayed and and kept you know um part of it was people leaving and part of it was me you know, continuing to prove that I, I deserve to have more responsibilities. Um, I learned a lot by observe, um, through observation. And when the executive chef left and they brought in a new executive chef, I was the one that kind of had to show him um, what the team had been doing and, and what the restaurant was about. And he really allowed me to um, have kind of um, he allowed me to take initiative and I, I don't think that current chef was in the mindset for the job and other folks um, were kind of happy with their lane and, and I continue to take initiative because I think there's always been a sense of I felt like we lacked leadership and um, part of being a leader is is really identifying the strengths of the people on your team. And I think I did that 
by establishing closer relationships with people who are working in every position at that restaurant. So the other line cooks, the dishwashers, the servers, um, we all created a mutual respect and understanding for one another. And I think that helped actually propel me and feel like I needed to I needed more responsibility and I wanted to lead this team. And so when the second executive chef left, um, the owner asked me to to take over and I felt ready at the time. And even though a lot of my coworkers were older than I was, um, they really responded to my style of, of leadership and, and doing and leading by example and, and you know, working harder than everyone else because I felt a responsibility to do that. And um, I was very fortunate to have great mentors and folks who supported me and really um, valued my ambition as opposed to questioning it. Yeah. So kind of starting talking about your other path, um, were you kind of a political person uh, throughout your adult, early adult life? I've always been vocal about challenging systems when I don't think they work for the team, my team. Um, I've always been... I guess you could say political in a sense that um, I know that and have always felt that um, individuals should have the right to empower themselves and have, have agency to um, participate fully. And I think that sounds very vague and broad, but it is how you collaborate with people. Um, I've always valued collaboration and then you really, there are some politics involved with that. You have to um, understand give and take, you have to understand um, building relationships. And so I don't know if I've always been um, political in a, in a traditional sense, um, more so that leadership has always been important to me. Defining leadership and understanding leadership and developing what, leadership means has always been important to me. Um, I had no ambition to run for office. Um, I mean, I, I, I think I held a couple official positions in student council growing, in, in, in school, but, um, you know, I was realizing more and more that uh, being in the hospitality industry, food is inherently political. Who has access to food? Um, you know, who's able to open restaurants where? Um, the type of dynamic that happens between, um, you know, are our, our, our restaurants um, equitable places? What is the role of a restaurant in a community? These are all political questions in my mind. Um, so I think, you know, between trying to amplify as many voices um, as I could through different you know, advocacy work um, with forming the Culinary Ladies Collective and forming Cook It Forward. Um, it, it's been through, I guess, community activism. I don't even know if I could define it as activism, but working to strengthen the community, you know, that's inherently, that's, that's I think, something that the hospital, that is reflective of the hospitality industry. And so, 
it, you know, leadership with leadership um, for me is strengthening community. And so all of those things combined for me, you know, has made my life always a little political, but I had no ambition to, uh, you know, be an elected official. Yeah. So how did Morris Ramen come about and how did your your next cooking venture come about? Yeah. So um, after leaving 43 North, uh, I, you know, definitely got burned out being <laughs> the executive chef of a restaurant that I, I um, you know, worked really hard to, to try to um, make better, but uh, we ended up parting ways and I took a break from cooking. Um, I took a break from cooking and, and went into working in uh, apartment leasing and development. And it was the first time I've ever had an office job. And I did a year of that and then was asked to come back into the industry. Um, and I realized through my little quarter life crisis, how much I missed hospitality and that sense of community that it always brought me. So I went back to cooking for um, Shinji Morimoto um, at his restaurant, Restaurant Morimoto. And when the space became available at 106 King Street, um, Shinji asked my partner and I if we would be interested in opening a restaurant with him. And I'd always loved that space. I always said that if I were going to open a restaurant in Madison, it would be in that space. It's, it's a small, intimate restaurant that would be about um, connecting through food, empowering ourselves with conversation, and, and really having a team that, that valued one another. You know, it's difficult to do that with more people. And I knew that a restaurant that size would, would really um, center the people that were working there. So we, you know, again, fortunate to have that connection with Shinji, and then he helped us open the restaurant in 2016. It was the same year I had, uh, um, I gave birth to my son, George, and uh, six months later gave birth to a restaurant and then increased our family by 20 people. Um, I think having a baby and opening a restaurant at the same time really set the tone for um, centering care as, as the principal philosophy of, of our restaurant. And, you know, I won't sugarcoat that the industry can be brutal to employees and um, the hierarchy and the pressure and the chaos and the stress and, um, you know, just the injustices of how front of house, back of house people are treated um, in the restaurant industry because we're supposed to always be of service. Um, and, and we wanted to really set the tone for having a working environment that centered our workers first, um, that uh, had a lot of open dialogue. Um, we wanted our staff to be able to um, have conversations with us about anything um, and really be involved in creating a working environment that was uh, conducive to everyone and, and allowed everyone to thrive regardless of, of you know how much they work there when you're there you're respected and um, uh, you're seen and you're valued and we really wanted to create a restaurant that valued the team and, and saw ourselves as a family and as a community um, 
in 2017 after uh, we opened. Um, I also co-founded the Culinary Ladies Collective because I felt really threatened by the election of 45. And I felt like we needed a space for those who were underrepresented in the restaurant industry, particularly um, women, uh, non-binary queer folks, uh, to have a place where they could network, empower one another, and we could pool resources and, and really celebrate our talents and do good in, in other places with like-minded organizations. Um, Morris Ramen continues, I think, to be a place that values workers, that um, appreciates our customers and, and wants to play a larger role in strengthening our community outside of the restaurant as well. And I'm really proud of, of being able to say that our our staff, you know, many of them have been there since we opened. We've always had very low turnover. And I think it's due to the fact that we've invested in the well-being of our staff above all else. Um, and so those are the types of principles and philosophies that I'll always keep with me, even in, you know, as an elected official. And I think it really helps me make the decision, the difficult decisions that I have to make in this office. Yeah. So how do you, I mean, you talked a little bit about it, but how do you intertwine like this kind of activism approach or with, you know, owning a restaurant and running a restaurant? How do those two things intertwine and how do you create uh, the combination of, of the two in your restaurant? Yeah. So it's, it's, it was, I think an, until before, the 2016 elections, you know, we didn't see a lot of small businesses, particularly restaurants or cafes, take strong political stances. And I think after 20, after the elections, um, because there was a sense of fear, and sometimes with fear, um, it's not always a bad thing. I, I think it really sets a sense of urgency for action, and. Um, we decided early on that we would stand with, um, we, we decided to stand with Planned Parenthood right away. We, we put, um, we, we held together a fundraiser um, and, you know, right around the Women's March and, and um, put signs in our window. And I, I think our activism helped us gain a better sense of our restaurant's identity and then what we stood for. And, and um, this idea of identity, I think every restaurant, it's integral to every restaurant's success and survival. And so we took a stand right away. And I think it helped us with that sense of, you know, that we weren't gonna be scared of uh, being public with, with where we stood. Um, where we thought things were wrong, well, where we wanted to be right. Um, and so becoming a more inclusive space was our form of activism, but it was also a way for us to strengthen our business. I think, I think that that intersection of activism and, and um, running a business is, is an intersection where it, uh, celebrates 
you know, strengthening community and um, helps people feel like they have a, uh, I think it strengthens businesses and I think it, it, it strengthens that, that identity. Yeah. So how did the Culinary Ladies Collective come about and, and what successes have you seen with that? Yeah, so the Culinary Ladies Collective was formed um, in 2017 in response to the 2016 election. Um, really, to, it was uh, co-founded by Leila Borokim and, and Tammy Lax, and we met each other through different events and the Madison Area Chefs Network, and we really thought that there wasn't a we needed to have a space where um, women who are historically underrepresented in the hospitality industry um, have a, a space to empower one another. And I think our first meeting was our most powerful because it was where we each told our stories. And I think having spaces to tell stories is incredibly powerful. We're doing that now. Um, this is quite therapeutic, by the way. Uh, but each woman, you know, we each had different experiences that we learned and we learned from sharing our stories about these experiences. Not every woman experienced the type of blatant sexism that someone else did in, in a kitchen. Um, but to know that that's what some folks go through really gives you a new, a different perspective or, or makes you think differently about creating better working environments. Um, we were able through our our collect our collective um, raise funds for other like-minded organizations that were much better run than we were, but we knew that we had talents and resources that we wanted to share through, uh, share too. So we we you know helped uh, raise money through um, you know different uh, baking or cooking endeavors, uh, raise money for uh, the rape crisis center. Um, uh, Journey Mental Health, uh, Planned Parenthood, um, our Cookie Box fundraiser, which is one of our most successful fundraiser this year, raised over $33,000 to help uh, women who are um, uh, in the hospitality industry, as well as um, Harambe Village, which is an incredible organization, uh, really committed to um, uh, young families and and uh, combating the um, uh, disproportionate infant mortality rates for black mothers. Um, and I think in the end, Culinary Ladies Collective is about sharing space, networking, having a place where your voice matters and your voice is heard and you feel empowered by others who are um, Know, may have had similar experiences to you, but still have an experience that's relevant to you. Um, and we're really fortunate to have so many talented um, women, queer, non-binary folks in the industry um, who have so much to offer. And we want to make sure that there are spaces uh, that really foster that. Yeah. So kind of tell me about the COVID-19 crisis and, and kind of what your feeling was on that i mean as a restaurant owner just kind of what was going through your head as you saw it becoming a pandemic and it becoming this imminent threat of that you were gonna have to close yeah so um i remember vividly the 
the last day we had guests in our restaurant, um, March uh, 17th, 2020. We have not had guests in our restaurant since that time. Um, what was going through my head was we were not doing we were not doing great financially. I mean, we were surviving, but restaurants have historically very, very low profit margins, especially restaurants that are small and independently owned. Um, and, and most of our uh, investments were in our workers. And so my initial thought was, how are we going to pay people if we're not open? What's gonna to happen to their jobs? Um, what's going to happen to, are we going to have to close? And if we close, do we still have to pay rent? Are we going to go bankrupt? All of these thoughts came, went through my head. But um, I respond to crises and, and feeling like I don't have control by making something. And, and so we started making meals for folks in the community right away. Um, we were able to, we didn't wanna, you know, whatever we could freeze, we could, we froze just because we didn't know what else to do with, with um, uh, uh, a lot of the uh, produce that we knew only had a couple days. And then we made sure that um, whatever we didn't freeze, um, we uh, cooked off and then brought to different mutual aid groups that were forming. Um, and for our workers, you know, we just started having uh, different fundraisers. You know, there was a virtual tip jar that was going around. Folks were buying gift certificates. Um, folks were sending us, uh, you know, our, our community stepped up to, to help make sure that our workers were taken care of. Um, the unemployment process for most of our workers were was somewhat horrendous, but most of them got benefits. And then when we got our PPP loan, um, we were able to hire back almost 75% of our original staff. Everyone was offered a job um, when we received our loan um, and about 75% came back. Um, but that's really, I guess, when, where more of my obvious political advocacy began because I knew that um, we were not going to get out of, we were not gonna come out of, of closing um, without financial assistance from the government. And because so many people had lost so much and we knew that it was only going to get worse through no fault of their own, that it was the duty of the government to provide relief. Um, and when we realized that that relief was not going to come swiftly because there was an utter failure in leadership from the federal level on down, um, that folks who are very much uh, do it first mentality um, were going to have to step up. And so, you know, I started writing to elected officials to help um, save. Uh, hospitality, that we are an industry that is devoted to helping others. So if you help us, we're going to be able to, it's going to have a ripple effect in, in helping others in the community. And even if that aid didn't come right away, we knew we had a responsibility to help others. So um, creating meals was the way we did that. And then we formed, uh, I co-founded Cook It Forward, which 
we through private and public donations um, were able to pay restaurants to provide meals for those in uh, traditionally underserved communities, but also those who through, again, no fault of their own, don't always have access to uh, central lead, centralized dis food distribution areas. Yeah, so do you remember kind of the moment when you realized that I mean, you had been writing to these elected officials. Do you remember the moment when you realized that maybe I should run for office or maybe this is something that for me that I don't know, just talk about that moment when you realized that, you know, maybe candidacy was an option for you? Um. So I had gotten relatively vocal on different social media platforms about the need to help the restaurant industry. And in that work, there were folks who were reaching out to me, asking me if I would consider, and I just sent them back in emojis because I thought it was absurd. But then I realized when you meet absurdity with absurdity, some things make sense. And we needed a new voice, um, a, a, a way for folks to kind of challenge um, the status quo in a very, in a meaningful way. And I think I realized, you know, after getting multiple messages from folks about running for office that if there's any a time to take a bold, unapologetic risk, it's in a time of crisis because we need to show others that there is opportunity and we're, we're, we're going to reach a point where we get sick about talking about hope. Let's do something about it. And I can continue to tell others to do other, <laughs> to do something about it without taking action myself. Leadership has always been very important to me. And I wanted people to feel represented by those who took leadership seriously. And that leadership needs to be representative if it's going to be true leadership. So the failure in leadership, I think, prompted me to run. Realizing that I mean, I didn't have any other excuse not to. <laughs> um, and so I announced on Mother's Day after a couple different conversations with folks who were well-versed in kind of inside politics that this wasn't so absurd. Um, the race was growing and I think that meant that people were ready for change and a new voice. And I think that my story and my coming from a background in an industry where putting others ahead of myself is what's most natural to me, um, that's what was needed. So I don't know if there was one particular moment. I think it was many moments and some reflection and then realizing again that 
in times of crisis, in times of absurdity, in times of fear, um, taking initiative and bold risk is a response that can really pay off um, and, and bring active hope to folks as opposed to just talking about hope. Yeah. So, I mean, this was a packed race um, for Assembly District 76. Um, there were seven candidates. Kind of what was the feeling when you were elected, I mean, or when you won the, won the primary? Um, kind of what was that that feeling? What was going through your head now that it was almost like a reality? Um, I remember looking at the numbers uh, on my phone and just falling. Like I crouched down and was just in disbelief. I was not expecting to win. I really, it was about the engagement for me. It was about bringing a voice to service industry workers, to folks who, you know, hadn't been as engaged in the civic process, folks who didn't, who felt like just because we don't know everything there is to know about how the government is run, we know that it should make people and help people. It should help people. <laughs> government should help people. And I think in that moment of winning, I um, felt a huge sense of relief followed by a huge sense of responsibility. It was like, I think COVID really is a time that's normalized feeling two very different emotions at once. And I think the moment that I saw that I'd won the primary, I was feeling immense gratitude with immense fear. And I knew that it was okay because I was feeling those two things at once. Um, but yeah, I was not expecting to win and it was a shock and our our uh, our debauchery of an acceptance speech and, and how uh, unprepared I was to respond to media and all of these people that I had been writing letters to were now calling me saying congratulations. Um, it was it was truly a, a outrageous, absurd, but and but still terrific moment. So so there's this huge issue of, of partisanship in, in Wisconsin state legislature and and frankly the whole country. Um, are you even focused on on trying to like find a middle ground or is that middle ground or that opportunity to have that middle ground passed? I mean, kind of what is your feeling? How do you do you have hope that there can be bipartisanship and, and common ground found between the two parties in our state legislature and in our country? I wonder if asking the question of bipartisanship is, is kind of a, a disservice to the process of democracy. I think right now it's difficult to find common ground when the ground isn't common um we 
and and I don't think our our systems of government really uh, haven't been conducive to just two parties. Um, and it shouldn't just be about the parties, and it shouldn't be about um, finding partisan finding bipartisanship when one party has clearly aligned itself to. And I'm not saying everyone in the Republican Party, but the party as a whole has not condemned the historical reality. They don't talk about truths. They pick and choose which parts of reality is most serve, is serves them the most. And I don't think that representation is, is ever going to be a commitment or a priority to them. Um, so when people ask me about bipartisanship, I, I hesitate because um, it's difficult to work with people who don't see any accountability in, in the underlying causes of how we got to where we are. Um, with everything that happened on January 6th, um, a, a party that does not condemn insurrection, a party does not condemn racism, xenophobia, that does not see the vast inequities of this country as being its greatest weakness instead, would rather continue to have a society that works only by oppressing others. Um, we shouldn't have to answer to finding common ground with folks who don't seek truth. I think the way forward is really to continue to uplift voices who are on the right side of condemning white supremacy, of understanding that our history and the institutions that are rooted in this history are not serving the majority of the people in this country. Um, and the majority of these people in this country, I, I truly believe, um, want there to be a working democracy. And so in order to do that, we have to continue to speak truth about why those who don't want that don't want that. Um, and so when people find my language combative or that I'm succumbing to the ways of the Republican Party that I'm just like them, I think we have to really reevaluate and start asking different questions about how we got here, what the underlying causes are, why do we continue to live with systems that are so unequal? Um, and just because they don't impact your everyday life in a direct way doesn't mean they won't later. Um, I continue to find hope in the fact that I know that eventually more people will find agency, more people will find their voice, and, and the more pe people we can get to fully participate in our community is the way we're going to strengthen them and build resiliency so that we don't find ourselves in crises like we are now. 
Um, but it's going to take a collective and a collaborative effort. And we can build that collective, this culture and, and that collaboration um, without having to justify or, or succumb to what folks who refuse to acknowledge our problems first I don't think we should have to answer to working with them. I think we we continue to hold them accountable and continue to build on uh, folks who really want to see good for others. Yeah. So what does it mean to you to be the first Asian American state legislature state legislator in in Wisconsin? I mean, and how do you feel knowing that? I mean, your people are looking up to you in this position yeah it's 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 truly a great honor and but it it doesn't matter if if i'm the first and the last it's my responsibility to make sure to examine why i'm the first and what can we do to engage more asian american leaders to become visible, to rightfully take more, uh, not take rightfully, um, you know, take initiative to run for office. Um, I think we have to look at, you know, what are the barriers from keeping Asian Americans from running for office and, and kind of collectively take approaches to engage more people to, to um, give them reasons to, uh, to really see why it's so important for us to um, be visible and, and be representative of our communities. I take very seriously that I'm the first, but I don't want to center the conversation around that. I want the conversation to be about uh, why I'm the first and, and uh, that is how we can get more folks to really step into leadership roles and empower themselves to um, represent their communities. Um, I have a, a duty and a responsibility to do that as the first uh, Asian American uh, representative. Yeah. So last question. I mean, what do you kind of see in, in your future? I mean... I see my future as continuing to build so many relationships with people in this community. And um, I see my future filled with learning um, about different experiences and how these different experiences can shape policy to help more people. Um, and I still see my future filled with uh, serving folks, cooking for folks, having conversations, important conversations about how we can collectively work to start changing some of these systems. Um, my future is, is filled with people and that gives me a lot of hope. Yeah, well, thank you so much for, for coming, Erin, and, and being on the podcast. I, I mean, is there anything else you want to say to the listeners or or tell the listeners? Well, I'm just so fortunate and, and really uh, grateful to share space with you today, Ben. And, oh, thank uh, you. Thank you for um, having this podcast and for uh, helping folks share their stories.
more information on Moore's Ramen, or if you would like to donate to Cook It Forward or the Culinary Ladies Collective, you can click the links in the description of this episode. The Madisonian Podcast is a production of Benjamin Brownie in association with We Are Productions. It's hosted by me, Ben Brown, cover art, editing, producing, and booking also by me. If you're a Madisonian and would like to be on the show, or you know someone who you think has a good story for the show, then please email me at ben at the madisonianpodcast.com to express interest. Please support us by buying our merch at teespring.com slash stores slash the Madisonian podcast. When you buy our merch, you become this form of mobile advertising. You're like a billboard. Wherever you walk around, people will ask you, oh, what the Madisonian podcast, they'll think in their head and they'll go listen to it. So it's really helpful for the show to support the show and wear comfortable clothes so you can click the link in the description of this episode or go to our website themadisonianpodcast.com to get your merchandise thank you so much for listening to this week's episode and keep an eye out for next week's episode